Well, it seems like every year, every Christmas, there is this one present that rises above all the other presents, and it is that one toy that every kid wants. So I've done a little bit of research this past week, and I've gone back through the years, and I've looked at some of the, uh, the more famous presents that have been the it toy. In 1934, it was a Shirley Temple doll. It cost $2.89, which today would be about $55. In 1960, does anybody want to guess what the toy to have was in 1960? Nope. Chatty Cathy. Everybody needed a Chatty Cathy in 1960. In 1964... It was a soldier named G.I. Joe. 1977 saw the rise of Star Wars action figures. All of them were necessary, but the two two most important were Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. 1983, any guesses on 1983? Cabbage Patch Dolls were the big deal in 1983. The guys took 84 with Transformers. 1996, anybody know 96? Tickle Me Elmo. Tickle Me Elmo was probably the most famous It toy of all time. 2006 rivaled Tickle Me Elmo. It was the Nintendo Wii. And all of these are fine. All of these were were toys that people went crazy over. I remember the lines for Tickle Me Elmo. I remember the lines for the Nintendo Wii. But I never got caught up in the hype for any of those. In fact, there's only one toy in my life that I remember getting caught up in the hype of and needing the It toy. The year was 1994, and the toy was the Talkboy tape recorder. Anybody remember the Talkboy tape recorder? Oh my goodness. I just seen Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and I flat out needed a Talkboy tape recorder. Put it on my Christmas list, number one spot, circled it, highlighted it, and every time we went into Kmart, I made sure we made our way down the aisle that had the Talkboy tape recorders on it with that picture of Kevin McAllister in front of the Plaza Hotel. I just needed my parents to know how much I needed a Talkboy tape recorder. It was going to be exactly how it worked for Kevin McAllister. I was going to order pizzas using that deep voice simulator thing. I was going to use it to spy on my sisters while they talked to boys on the phone. It was going to be awesome. I was going to be able to listen to cassette tapes. What? Cassette tapes and my Talkboy tape recorder was going to be awesome. It was going to change my life. I wasn't even going to need my parents anymore. Kevin McAllister didn't need his parents. It was going to change my life. I was going to be able to do anything and everything I wanted all the time. Well, Christmas morning came along. You know what I got? I got me a Talkboy tape recorder. Yeah, this story this story's going pretty well. And I was so excited. My parents knew it was a big deal, so they had the batteries ready. And pretty soon, my Talkboy tape recorder was up and running. And you know what happened next? No. No, I didn't drop it. I became completely underwhelmed. Turns out the Talkboy tape recorder is a lot cooler on the set of a major motion picture being filmed in New York City. 
not nearly as cool in my living room. All of the things that Kevin McAllister did with his Talkboy tape recorder turns out don't translate well into real life. Talkboy tape recorder is a lot cooler on TV than it is in person. I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed. I wanted it to be amazing. I wanted it to be amazing for months and months and months, and I had plans of how amazing it was going to be, and it just didn't live up to my expectations. And I learned that Christmas that unrealistic expectations can be pretty messy. Unrealistic expectations can be pretty messy. And the people of Israel learned that lesson too. See, they had unrealistic expectations of who this Messiah would be. What He would do. And we talked about last week that many of them thought He was going to be a great military leader who would, who would lead the people of Israel out of captivity. Some of them thought He was going to be a great political leader who was going to uh, forge peace throughout the kingdom and bring them back to prominence. And that wasn't the case. But even the people who didn't have that expectation, even the people who understood that Jesus had come to save the people from their sins, they still had to learn how that was going to happen. They had unrealistic expectations too. I can, I can imagine them thinking, well, Jesus is just going to speak forgiveness into existence. After all, they spoke creation into existence and they're just going to say, you're forgiven. That'll be it. turns out it's a little bit more complicated than that. It turns out that many of the people found Jesus about as useful as a talkboy tape recorder. He seemed a lot better in prophecy than he did in person. He just seemed a lot better in prophecy than he did in person. Here's what Jesus had to say about life and what new life might look like. This new life that he came to bring. This is Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish its purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches the others to do that, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you'd been on the side of the mountain where Jesus was preaching this sermon, you'd probably look around and see everybody going, wait, what? What did He just say? It's interesting that Jesus chose to preach from that spot on the side of that mountain because many people, many men who claimed to be the Messiah chose that spot to speak from. All of them wanted to spark a revolution. They wanted to overthrow Roman oppression. They wanted to overthrow the Jewish religious system. And yet, Jesus is up here in the same spot as all of these other messiahs proclaiming a message that's dramatically different than anything that any of them would have said. 
instead of overthrowing the Jewish religious system, Jesus says that not even the smallest letter of the law is going to disappear until it's been achieved. They lived in a world in this first century where the priests were either highly revered or highly resented. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses all of them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? This isn't what the people wanted at all. This isn't the, this isn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. That's not, that's not how it was supposed to happen. But remember, God loves us enough to give us what we need and not just what we want. You see, the people thought that their greatest problem was the Romans, but God knew that their greatest problem was sin. God knew that the greatest problem in all of the people's lives was sin. And if we were to take this idea of sin and boil it down to a root cause, we would say, we would say that the root of sin in our lives is selfishness. The root of sin in our lives is selfishness. We can apply it a hundred different ways. We could say it a hundred different ways, but I'll give you a few examples. I don't care what you want because I want what I want. I don't care what you say is right because I want what I want. I don't care about you because I want what I want. The root of sin in all of our lives is selfishness. That's just truth. I think that the Holy Spirit can do the work of convicting that and applying it in the right ways. He did that to me as I was preparing this sermon this past week. Uh, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let uh, the Word of God and the power of Holy Spirit apply that however it's necessary for your life. Uh, but I do want to share Jesus' answer with you because remember, Jesus is preaching this sermon on the side of a mountain where many other messiahs stought, sought to spark a revolution. And even though Jesus' words are counterintuitive, they are as revolutionary as anything that's ever been said. So what's Jesus' answer to this problem of sin? He says you've got to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. Ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. Jesus' ministry took place in a world where power and authority were the dominant currencies. But Jesus went the opposite direction. Jesus went the opposite direction. He says in Mark chapter 10, you've heard it said that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people and their high authorities exercise authority over people. It's not that way among you. Instead, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must be a servant. Let's translate just a little bit. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be a slave of all. You've got to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. Jesus, are you sure? You've got to be a slave to who? To anybody who needs help. Are you sure about this, Jesus? Yes, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus' answer to this idea of sin is to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. And He sets it up brilliantly. He doesn't just say it. He shows us that there's absolutely no other way. You see, we're, we're people. And uh, we, we're, we're kind of 
naturally endowed with this condition. Uh, it's called do-it-yourselfedness. Uh, I guess there's a, a more clinical term for it. It's called pride. I like do-it-yourselfedness a little better. It stings less. But, but people, we all kind of have this mindset. We're just going to do it ourselves. And, and we'll look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and, and we'll say, okay, all I have to do is follow the law, and I'm set. All I've got to do is follow along. I'm set. No problem. That's, that's, that's pretty easy. I'll just open up the Old Testament and make sure I do what it says. And because Jesus knew that would be our response, here's what he says, starting in verse 21. He says, you've heard it said that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with somebody, you're subject to judgment. If you call somebody an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse somebody, you are in danger of the fires of hell. He goes on in verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anybody who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Here's, here's what he says. You've heard it said, this is verse 38, you've heard it said that the law says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye tooth for a tooth, but I say don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him your other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt's taken from you, give him your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. He goes on, verse 43, you've heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So just do, just do what the Bible says, right? We just, we'll just take care of this on our own. We'll just do what the Bible says. It's not going to be a big deal. We'll be fine. Jesus kind of culminates this whole argument. In verse 48, He says, You are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not possible this idea that we'll just do it ourselves. It's not possible. I can't do all that. We can't do all that. We can't do any of it for very long. If that's what I need to do, that's as unrealistic as the Talkboy tape recorder in Home Alone 2. If that's what I need to do, I'm in some pretty serious trouble. If I have to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, can do that for a while, but I'm in some pretty serious trouble because I know I don't get it right all the time. If I have to offer my other cheek to the one who slaps me, I'm in trouble right off the bat. If I have to gouge out my eye, when I look at my past, I've been in trouble there. If I have to offer all of this service to people and, and not turn away people who want me to give. And I'm in serious trouble. And, and if I uh, can't murder, or well, I, I'm not in trouble there. But, uh, <laughs> but if I'm angry with somebody and, and I'm subject to judgment for that, well, I'm in trouble. I can't do it. 
just can't do it. And that's why I made the decision to follow Jesus. Because He did for me what I couldn't do. He did for me what I couldn't do. Do you remember what He said at the beginning of our text today? Verse 17, He says, Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to accomplish their purpose. Let me translate that a little bit for you. He came to do what we need so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. He came to do what we couldn't. He came to fulfill the law's purpose because we can't. That's why I made the decision to follow Jesus because I can't. And I think some of you are probably in that same boat. So what if you need to make the decision to follow Jesus? What do you need to do? Um, That's the question that we're going to be answering for the rest of this month. But I want to start with something real simple today. What do you need to do to follow Jesus? You need to start ruthlessly eliminating selfishness. You want to follow Jesus, you've got to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. And how do I know that's Jesus' answer? Because Matthew chapter 5 is followed by Matthew chapter 6. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing their trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward. All the reward they're going to get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Let's skip ahead to verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everybody can see them and hear them. I tell you the truth, They've gotten all the reward they're going to get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Verse 7, when you pray, don't babble on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask. Verse 16, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that's the only reward they're ever going to get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. Do those things anyway, even when you're not fasting. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father who knows what you do in private. And your Father who sees everything will reward you. One more. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eat them and rust destroy them where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves don't break in and steal because where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. You know what Jesus is communicating here? He's saying you've got to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. He says, when you give, don't look for recognition. When you pray, don't seek honor. When you fast, don't crave sympathy. When you work, store up treasures on earth see those mindsets are all about what we get when we pray don't look for recognition or we don't seek honor when you give don't look for recognition when you fast don't crave sympathy when you work don't store up treasures here on earth instead give in secret 
Pray in private. Fast quietly and store up your treasures in heaven. All of that's about giving up selfishness. We have to give up our need for others to think we're generous. We've got to give up our need for others to think we're religious. We've got to give up our need for others to think we're pious. We've got to give up our need for others to think we're rich. Now, is it wrong to be generous? I mean, let me pose that question to you. Is it wrong to be generous? No. Is it wrong to be religious or pious or even rich? No. It's wrong when we need others to think we are. It's not wrong to be any of those things. It is wrong when we need others to think we are. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Let me translate that into some language we're using. If you want to follow me, you have to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. What do we replace it with? What do we replace it with? So this is part of the sermon where we've been saying, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. And a natural question I hope has been forming in your mind. If I'm supposed to get rid of selfishness, what do I replace it with? And it's funny that Jesus feels that this question is coming because at the end of Matthew chapter 6 in verse 33, He gives us the answer. If we're going to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness, what do we replace it with? Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And I'll give you everything you need. You've got to ruthlessly eliminate selfishness. And seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And He'll give us everything we need. The people had expectations of getting an authoritative king. They expected to get a free and prosperous Israel. They expected to get a kingdom on earth. But in this sermon... Jesus changed all of that by giving His expectations. So if I had to summarize this Sermon on the Mount, here's what I'd say. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. That's God's expectation. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. We had all kinds of expectations for Jesus. But in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, these are my expectations for you. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. As we get older, we learn this lesson around Christmas time. Leah and I are going to give each other gifts this year. And we're going to like what we get. And we're going to like what we give. But the thing that we're never going to forget is the things that we give to our children. This is the first Christmas that Atticus is really going to get it. He's got a toy that he wants. He reminds us of it all the time. He has a Christmas catalog. Uh, Chris Owsley gave it to him. And uh, he's got a Christmas catalog, and there's a toy fire truck that he really, really wants. And uh, we got it for him. We got it for him, right? and I can't wait to see his face. I, I can picture it lighting up. I know he's going to be happy, probably going to jump up and down, and he's going to want Leah and I to get down on the ground and play with this toy with him, and he's going to be happy. I can't wait to give him that gift. Jesus' challenge in the Sermon on the Mount is that we live that way every day with everybody we come in contact with. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. And if you live that way, Jesus says you will never, ever be disappointed. Let's pray. God,
We love you. We are so grateful that you didn't come merely to meet our expectations. We are so grateful that you came instead to give us a new way of life and a new life. So God, would you help all of us today to live life the way that you've called us to? And if any of us in here need to get new life, would you give us the courage to do so? We love you, God. We praise you. And we ask that this next song we sing would be fitting praise to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.